Hey, this is Sebastian Major from the podcast Our Fake History, and you're listening to The Night Nerd. Welcome to the Night Nerd Podcast. I'm your host, Lance, and I have a show for you. We're wrapping up our week featuring Canada. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Got to learn a lot of neat things about it, talk to some cool people. And that's how we're going to finish the week, is talking to Sebastian Major of Our Fake History. This guy knows more. He's forgotten more than I'll ever know about history and stuff. Uh, super knowledgeable. Make sure to check out his podcast, Our Fake History, everywhere. It's one of the top-rated podcasts uh, in North America, awards, fame, fortune. Okay, maybe not fame and fortune, but great show. Super nice guy. I had a lot of fun. Uh, we talk about everything from the War of 1812 to Canadian pop culture taking over America and everything in between and then some. So here it is. I hope you enjoy my interview with Sebastian Major. All right, I'm here with Sebastian Major, the host of Our Fake History. Sebastian, how are you doing today? I'm great, man. Good to be back. Yeah, great to have you. Last time you were here, uh, we were celebrating you hit 100 shows, and now you're about to wrap up your current season. Uh, man, congratulations. You're just rocking and rolling. It is, it's an, a joy to listen to your show. <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I know, I know 100 shows at the time felt like just impossible, uh, and uh, now I'm I'm closing in on 136. Wow. So with no plans of stopping, so it, the the journey continues. Nice. I you have your season finale coming up because um, you do seasons, which is yeah. so smart. I wish I would have <laughs> done seasons instead of daily, but <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat. I'm gonna use my my American privilege, which we'll get into in a little bit. But your season finale is an AMA ask me anything. Yeah. So instead of like sending in an email and doing it the proper way, I'm just going to plant the seed and we'll come back to it at the end of the show. But if there was ever a show you started researching and then said, this is too much or too crazy, I'm walking away. So just kind of percolate on that in the, the back of your head, but you- uh, No you problem, just... I'll, I'll think about that, I'll think about that. <laughs> you just finished a series, a three-part series. Uh, for those of you that don't listen to Our Fake History, one, go subscribe right now. It's Super informative. Um, I I like the way that you don't take so you're just like, hey, this is history, and here's why this person was wrong. Here's why this person was right, and you just did a whole series on the War of 1812, and you're Canadian, and that, you know there were sometimes you you kind of checked yourself. You're like, okay, I have to put my bias aside and mention this. Yeah. How how was that? How much fun or difficult was that battle? Yeah. Um, well, man, first of all, I had so much fun making this series and, you know, one of the challenges with the show. So those of you that don't know out there listening, that don't know the show, I look at historical myths. So I look at stories and legends that get wrapped up in the historical record that may or may not be true. And so the, the show is part storytelling and then part historical detective work. But I'd been doing a lot of shows where I'd been looking at cultures that weren't my own and I really had to do a lot of research to kind of um, approach them with the sort of respect that they deserved. So I just come out of doing these shows on Ethiopia and they were awesome and fun to get into. And Ethiopia is super interesting, uh, but I felt like I had to be really 
careful with how I was sort of um, approaching what were essentially sacred stories to the people of Ethiopia. And after that, someone in like one of the Facebook groups for our fake history was like, hey man, what do you think about the war of 1812? And I was like, I want to tell you everything I think about it because this is as a Canadian and especially as an Ontarian, it is my story in some ways. It is so connected to the Canadian identity, that little bit of history that I'm like, oh, let's get into it. This is one where I can really bring my own experience uh, to the table a bit more. Uh, and I can really kind of play in that, in that zone in a way that I maybe would not be as comfortable kind of playing with Ethiopian history. So I was just pumped to do that. That was like the, the number one reason. But the other big thing is that the War of 1812 is a conflict that is perceived very differently in Canada compared to how it's perceived in the United States. Uh, and also very differently as to how it's perceived in Britain, which is not something I really got into uh, in, the, uh, in the show. So through the course of it, uh, the whole, the whole uh, series was, was called Who Won the War of 1812? So it's sort of coming down to that, you know, most controversial of questions, who actually won? Um, and, but I knew along the way, I was gonna have to bust a number of Canadian myths because for Americans, the War of 1812 sometimes gets called the Forgotten War, uh, or it's considered like War of Independence Part Two. Uh, it's it's not often it's it's not often taught in detail, uh, and most Americans have kind of a cursory understanding of it. But for Canadians, it's actually it's really taught in our education system. And if there's one conflict in our history that a lot of Canadians know something about. It's the War of 1812, other than World War II, of course, right? And so, and so I was like, oh, let's get into it because there are a number of uh, nationalistic myths that Canadians have absorbed from that conflict. But then I also wanted to take on the American perception of World War, or it's not World War II, sorry, the War of 1812, because uh, it is also skewed in its own uh, particular way. Yeah. Well, down here in, in Texas, uh, I got to think about, I was like, what did I learn about the war in 1812? Because, you know, we, we rotate in, in grade school, you know, do American history, world history, Texas history, and that you kind of go through that cycle. And the war of 1812, the best thing I could think to compare it to, and uh, my listeners, if, if you know me, you know, I'm not a Star Wars fan. So this hurts my heart. But you know how like in episodes four, five, and six, they're like, oh, yeah, they have these Clone War things. <laughs> uh, they, they don't mention it and that's all you know and that's that's how it is it's like oh the clone wars okay but up there in canada you know y'all have the animated series and the sequels and the spinoffs and the prequels and that, that's kind of how the war of 1812 is to me is i'm like oh he fought in the clone wars oh cool uh, that's a thing i guess but it's yeah kind of crazy yeah well i mean for canadians the war of 1812 is so significant it's because we beat america in a war or at least that's what we're taught. It's actually far more complicated than that, uh, as I kind of get into in, in the, the series of three shows. But America tried to invade Canada and was not successful. And so as Canadians, we take a lot of pride in that. Because like, especially if you are growing up in the 20th, 21st century, you know, America is the world superpower. And 
trying to compare, you know, the place that uh, America has on the world stage militarily to the place that Canada has on the world stage militarily, it, it's not even close. It's not even, uh, it's, it's laughable. But back in the early 1800s, it was a different story. And, uh, and Canadians, heavily assisted by the British Empire, uh, were able to resist invasion from Americans. And in many ways, that actually bound together a bunch of sort of disparate colonies that really didn't feel like they had much in common at all before that point uh, into a, a common sense of identity. Now, sometimes that narrative gets overplayed. It's not like War of 1812 happened and then boom, we were all uh, one cohesive Canadian thing. That's not at all the case, but it, it really is a origin story for Canadian nationhood. Um, and so it's really important to a lot of Canadians and a lot of Canadians take great pride in the fact that we beat America in a war. And, and it also leads to funny things, man, just today I was watching an exchange on Twitter and people now are adding me on Twitter. Anytime people get into it about the war of 1812, <laughs> which happens in history, Twitter. Um, and they're like, look at this guy with his bad 1812 take. You should see this. <laughs> And in a lot of times, it's actually Canadians getting things wrong. Uh, a lot of times, it's Canadians pumped up with a little bit of Canadian pride, going like, "You Americans think you win everything. You think that you know you are just have this undefeated record on the battlefield." But little old Canada showed you what was what in 1812, and then they'll proceed to spit out a few myths that maybe aren't completely accurate. Yeah. Well, and even like one of the biggest myths that. Uh, one of the only things I knew about it, which was wrong, surprise, the history books I grew up reading were, were wrong, but the, the burning of the White House, because you, you said that those are actually British soldiers by way of Spain via um, Bermuda. Not, Bermuda, yeah, I was like, not Cuba, but yeah, Bermuda came up. And yeah, there was probably like two or three Canadians there, but it wasn't, an, it wasn't a Canadian attack. And I think that's something, you know, we talked about it when you were last on the show, like how these myths, that, that grain of truth, and then they just get spun. Uh, and especially something like that, you know, that's a, a rallying point, you know, because pre yellow journalism days, you know, we, America is known for that, like taking one little thing uh, in the battle of New Orleans, you know, you mentioned that like technically the war was over, but it's like, oh, it's because we won this battle, even though <laughs> it, it took two months for news to travel. So, and yeah, I, I thought that was kind of interesting because even um, people who have ran this country before thought Canada burned it down. And, and if, you know, you bring it up in the show a little yeah. bit, how it, it affected business and trade over myths. <laughs> and if that's not a reason yeah. to show, I mean, you, you could save the commerce between our two countries if people would just listen to your show. I know, I know. I know exactly. The, the people uh, who are real, really upset about aluminum tariffs were all sharing my show going, hey, man, those aluminum tariffs were over nothing. <laughs> but uh, but but it, that myth about burning the White House. So that's one that, I, you know, my my own father really believes that myth. And to him, that's a source of, of pride as a Canadian and as an Ontarian, because it because it comes out of a nugget of truth. The nugget of truth being that when 
the American armies first tried to invade Canada, many of the people fighting them off were these uh, local militias that had been raised uh, from Canadian Ontarian settlers. And, uh, and, and so these local militias really did sort of like fill in the gaps for what was kind of an under garrisoned colony at the time. And so that there is truth there, right? That is a thing that happened, right? And so this is why Canadians take great pride in the fact that like we fought off Americans. But then that little true thing gets extended to everything that happens in the war. So there's other things that happen in the war where it's British regulars who are being shipped in from Europe after the, the Napoleonic Wars have just sort of entered essentially a hiatus, but they thought it was done at the time, right? And they're being shipped in to really do some, inflict some damage on places like, um, like Washington, D.C., uh, raiding the Chesapeake Bay area. But many Canadians like to say, we burnt down Washington. We turned the White House white. That was us. And we were, a, and, and I think a lot of Canadians also imagined that it was Canadians that marched there, yeah. right? They like to think that we like crossed the border and marched on down and no one could stop us because we're tough. <laughs> and and then we got to Washington and just had our way with it and then left because we don't want to stay in America. <laughs> we want to go back home where it's good. And and but again, that's not true. That's not how it happened. Um, the people that burned Washington were these hardened veterans who had been fighting Napoleon in Spain. Uh, they had been brought in for the task specifically because they were hardened veterans who'd been fighting Napoleon in Spain. Um, it's hard to get a sense of what the makeup of those companies were. Uh, it's sort of beyond the scope of my show. I sure like a real historian could like go into the British records and be like, oh, this man comes from Cornwall. And oh, I, I guess this guy did have a, a farm in New Brunswick, right? But we, but again, that it, to call that force Canadian is uh, just not accurate. Well, and what's another cool thing about that myth is it's all about the spin because you can either spin a Canadian of, oh, they burned down the White House or the American spin is, well, God is on our side and he brought in a hurricane and it only lasted 30 minutes and then yeah. God drove you out of America. And <laughs> so depending on, on what side you're yeah. on, and, you know, you don't get a lot of those, you know, usually it's like, oh yeah, we lost or yeah, you know, we won, we were triumphant. But this one, depending who you talk to, it's like, yeah, they burned it down, but you know, manifest destiny came through and, yeah america the great and stuff so i, I thought it was kind of neat yeah uh, you know, to, to learn more about that but the we're celebrating the 175th anniversary of more or less the finalization of the american canadian border which ended with oregon and right. uh, we were talking a little bit before the show for those of you that don't know in this you talk about like uh scope and stuff i am not anywhere near a history podcast but basically America and Britain and Canada were like, okay, Oregon, we'll, we'll come back to that in 10 years. And they came back to them like, we'll come back to that in 10 years. And then it was like, well, somebody needs this, you know, and everybody wanted it. And it almost turned into uh, some of the stuff I read, like, it, you know, um, Polk or whoever it was, it was running for president. was like, we're the, they're going to give it to us. Or we're going to take it. But as, as you mentioned, most conflicts of that time ended with a pin instead of a rifle. Uh, yeah. So, and that, that kind of happened. Uh, so between that and then also 
they because the border was established by you know, latitude, longitude, parallels. But they said now you know, it's off because they didn't have the measurements we had now. So is, is are y'all going to come back and like try to reclaim where, the, you know, the Oregon Trail and all that and where <laughs> the, the actual line should be? Is that something well, I need to worry about? It is funny because that does flare up like every 10 years or so. And it's always around like where you can fish. That's always the question. Uh, on the West Coast there, it's all about the salmon fisheries and like where where British Columbia's salmon fishery ends and Washington State salmon fishery began, right? Because Alaska has its own sort of arcane fishing rights that are also enshrined in, in a treaty somewhere. Um, but it does flare up from time to time. And, I, you know, it probably makes the news if you live in Washington state, but in Canada, it's always national news. When we have a like dispute with America, it's a big deal here because we're like, what are the Americans going to do? And, uh, <laughs> and so like, I mean, and, and it always comes to, it always comes down to this question of like how, truly sovereign is Canada. And obviously, you know, uh, us being completely independent uh, and, and, need, and, and to be respected as such is extremely important to us. However, we're deeply aware that we live next door to this behemoth, this, this world power that, uh, you know, par excellence <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, there's only so much we can do. We can make a fuss about it diplomatically, but if America really wanted to turn her might against us, you know, in, in 2021, we wouldn't, or what year are we in? Yeah, 2021. God, I've lost, I've, I think the pandemic has just erased our brains for years, but, uh, but we wouldn't have much to do other than to like appeal to the international community, right? And so this is another big Canadian tactic is that we've really tried since like the end of World War II, Canada has really tried to cultivate this really like robust international diplomatic presence. Uh, and in the back of my mind, I, this is my personal theory. I always think it's because like that's our fail safe if America should ever turn on us is that we'll like appeal to the international community and go like, we've been this great like international partner to all of you for for decades. Like now's the time to come to our aid. But I mean, I don't know if that would actually happen, but I feel like that's like the the, the long play for Canadians. Or you could just, you know, not release any of the molasses or anything. And then we, we but you know, we're too busy fighting ourselves. So you're, you know, y'all could sneak in and take a, a fishery here and a river there. And we probably wouldn't even notice unless somebody like tweeted about it. Like, oh, oh well, let it, it's just a river. Let them, let them have it. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but I mean, gosh, in, in recent years, when there was a lot of questions about borders and I know it was less about the Canadian American border, uh, but even so, you know, we Canadians felt it and, uh, and also just the quite like, you know, we had this, like, you know, uh, treaties like NAFTA and the fact that our trade is so deeply connected, uh, when America turns to a more, um, uh, isolationist position or protective position, uh, we feel it. And we even felt it during the pandemic, right? For a minute, all of a sudden it was hard for us to get like, uh, the N95 masks, 
uh, and just because you know the administration at the time in the United States wanted to hoard them. Uh, and we had, as Canadians, like it was like, it took the prime minister and like a whole trade delegation to get the masks. Uh, and then, you know, same thing with the vaccines, a uh, little less intense this time, but like the United States got those vaccines before, uh, before Canada really got a, a steady supply of vaccines. Um, and so uh, it just was a reminder of like how deeply entwined uh, our economies are. Uh, and how deeply entwined our relationship is. Um, and so, I mean, and, and this goes back right to the beginning, right? Uh, and that's why I'm kind of fascinated by 1812, because it's like really the first time that like, you know, that, that the fact that Canada is going to be a thing and it's going to remain a thing uh, really gets sort of insisted on. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm glad you brought up trade and stuff, because I was doing some, because like you said, in Texas, the only, you know, you, you talk about America being isolationist, but Texas, we're the, the dome within a dome, you know, it's our way or the highway. And <laughs> we'd always heard, you know, oh, Canada's like the loft department above a, a party house and uh, don't worry about them. But I was doing some <laughs> research and I didn't realize almost 25% of all trade between us goes across the Ambassador Bridge. Like there's one bridge that handles all of it uh and that kind of blew my because I, I was looking up you know speaking of the pandemic basically what they did is after 9 11 when they shut the borders down they just copy and pasted most of the protocol they had then and uh and especially on the canadian they were like well hey you know we still have to find a way to get goods you know we don't have to necessarily get people across but we have to get goods because y'all have stuff we need we have stuff y'all need and i, I think that was uh, really Im impressive and admirable, you know, and that, that goes to the stereotype yeah. of the, the nice neighbors up north too, you know, trying to get, make the world go better. Yeah, well, I, and again, actually the ultimate example is that N95 mask, right? That really good mask that, you know, they needed in hospitals. So that mask is manufactured in the United States exclusively. There are no companies or no factories in Canada that manufacture that mask, but that mask is entirely made using pulp and paper products that come from Canada, right? So like all that pulp and paper goes across the border to, you know, I'm not sure what part of the United States actually manufactures those masks. Uh, and then they get shipped out to, you know, the entire continent or maybe the entire world. Um, and so like, that was the thing that, that was the screw that our trade delegation could turn because uh, it's not like we're going to go like, well, we're going to like, we're going to launch a strike, you know, like that's not going to happen. But we can go like, hey, you do know that all of the paper that those masks are made from comes from Canada. That was something that the administration did not know. They had not looked into that uh, and needed to be reminded of that by uh, by the Canadian delegation. Uh, and that and that made it happen, right? That was at least that's how it got reported up here that like that was the screw that got turned that like, you know, it's like, hey, if you want us to turn off the tap of like Canadian pulp and paper, like don't make us do that, right? Because our both of our economies are deeply, deeply entwined. Um, and, and they have been, especially since NAFTA has existed since the early nineties. Um, and now I know we've got like a different version of it, like the NAFTA, NAFTA 2.0, the USMCA, whatever they call it. But, uh, 
but that, especially that trade deal has like created a, a truly North American uh, economic ecosystem. And, uh, and so that's why when like one of the countries decides like, nope, we're not really, we're not really abiding by that anymore. It's like, man, you got a lot to undo. Like you forgot about paper. You forgot about how aluminum works. Yeah. Right. Again, no, no surprise on our end though, on that one. Uh, but I want to, I want to fast forward real quick to, to now. I feel like, especially with the pandemic, that we have we're having a Canadian invasion as far as entertainment um shows like Schitt's Creek, Letterkenny, Kim's Convenience um you know we always had Degrassi like Degrassi's sure jam, but I I know so many people that during quarantine they're like oh have you have you ever seen Schitt's Creek have you ever seen Letterkenny yeah. Like, yeah, I've been watching these things for four or five years now but uh you're in it I think it's something to be said because you mentioned how intertwined we are it's like it's not like watching uh, a novella or a telenovela or something, or you know, even British television where they speak mostly how we do. But the the cool thing about Canadian stuff, I think, is what makes it appealing is you are the neighbor, so it's like, oh, it's your neighbor telling your story. Um, lot, big music influx in the yeah. past decade. Uh, what? How did? How is that reported on? Like on your? Is it? Oh, do y'all go like the hipster around? Like, oh, Americans are stealing our TV. Like, or is it like, hey, look, we're sharing stuff and it's awesome. Canadians love it when Canadians get popular in the United States. <laughs> like they really. It's it's never it's never a like oh how dare you or or the, we, we might get a little like we knew about them first. But we are we are like pumped at about famous Canadians, and like I've I've joked on other shows that like Canadians are issued a list in the mail of like every famous Canadian. So if they ever come up, we can go. Oh, you know they're you know they're Canadian. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're proud of them. I I maybe I should speak for myself, but I really think this is a very common attitude: is that we're really proud of that. Um, you know our. I love a lot of Canadian music and I just was lucky that when I was in university, that was right during the Canadian indie rock boom. So there was a lot of really cool bands coming out of Montreal and Toronto right at that time. So that was when, like when Arcade Fire exploded and Broken Social Scene um, and like all of these other bands sort of in their orbit. There's a really cool record label in Toronto called Arts and Crafts Records that had all sorts of bands that I really love that kind of came out at that time. Vancouver's scene was really kind of popping off at that time as well. And so I remember when I was in university, right when I was at my peak, like music obsessive moment, uh, I was like, all my favorite bands are Canadian. Like, isn't this awesome? Like all my favorite bands are Canadian. And then when you see a band like Arcade Fire go and like conquer the world as Canadians, we're like, damn right. You know, they come from Montreal. Now I know Wynn Butler is actually from Texas. So I will give you that. The Butler boys are from Texas, but that's a Montreal band at heart, you know? Yeah. See, I, when I started, because we call, we call it college down here, even though we go to a university, like we yeah. still just call it college. Like, oh yeah, go off to college. Uh, and that, that's one thing I enjoy on your show. Like he, you'll say something, I'll be like, I bet he means this. And I'll look it up and like, okay, that's like the Canadian vernacular for, for what we have. But you yeah. know, uh, we're talking early, like 2001, 2002-ish. So you had your... Nickelbacks, Default, uh, and those were my day. And I actually, those of you that don't know, long before I was a nerd, I was an almost cool kid, and I actually got to tour with some of those bands and do. Some oh, really? Stuff. Yeah. So you know, I was like, 
I, I don't, I've never understood the Nickelback hate and stuff, but um, so, you know, I, yeah, it's, I, it's, it's disproportionate. It's disproportionate uh, to, to what they're about. And I will say that Nickelback put on a great show. Oh yeah. I mean, you don't sell as many albums as they did and be a bad band. You know, that's just. No, no. But you know what? They, if, if anything, they, they do a thing that Canadians are sometimes self-conscious about, which is they were playing a style of music that got like uncool in America, like five years before they hit, you know? And so like, that's always the worry it's, and I know that's like a running joke in like sitcoms, you know, like, uh, uh, the, like how I met your mother. The whole joke is that like Canada's horribly out of touch. Right. Uh, and, and Nickelback, I think the reason that maybe Canadians get sensitive about it, I guess Canadians that are not Nickelback fans, I should say, is the idea of like, oh, they're just going to think that we were doing grunge, you know, 10 years too late or five years too late or whatever. Yeah, I would see like, I mean, I'm like, I would put Nickelback, um, Default, Theory of a Dead Man, people like that, like that kind of like, now they call it like mom rock. I remember back toward the end of the touring days like people were like oh that's like radio rock mom rock and i was like oh like it, it's not it's fun it's cool but it's so that but yeah so that canadian culture you know i remember even when i was little like shania twain country oh yeah from canada oh my gosh and and you know now we have ryan reynolds and and everything so yeah. uh it's not quite the like the british invasion that we had back in the the 50s and 60s and stuff but i think it's you know worth acknowledging and worth mentioning because you do see all these shows and not just fan favorites you know you see them i mean i keep going back to Shit's creek but i think every last year everybody i know streamed it and yeah. you know, it won all all the emmys and all the awards and everything um so i know i just i think that's cool that again goes to show our similar uh, similarity uh, yeah like similar. no and, I, and i'll say this like it kind of goes in waves right like there was sort of like a canadian invasion in the 70s when like all of the kind of toronto comedy scene became what was saturday night live mm-hmm. right uh and like lord michaels is is canadian right and is from toronto and then like there was another wave in the 90s right when you had uh like guys like mike myers getting massive uh, but then also like the kids in the hall and their influence on comedy. I think, especially when it comes to comedy and music, those are two places where Canada like punches above its weight culturally. Um, and, and it like continuously, I think that like, I think Canadians have a really interesting perspective on the United States uh, that makes us good comedians, uh, that makes us good like cultural observers uh, because, you know, we're both sort of so in- intimately connected and understand American culture, but we're still kind of outsiders and we can kind of we can kind of see it from a different angle, perhaps. Um, and then just musically, I, I, there's no accounting for that other than just like Canada has consistently punched above its weight uh, musically. And I am I just love so much Canadian music. I made this like big. Canadian playlist for the, the, uh, the war of 1812. It was a companion piece. Um, and so, yeah, but what's interesting is that Canadian television, uh, even in Canada, we joke that Canadian television is kind of crap. Uh, Canadian television is often not good. And then every now and then like a gem is produced, right? Like kids in the hall is a great example. Like, 
you know, that all in the nineties, like most Canadian television was just garbage, but then like you get this amazing cutting edge uh, sketch comedy group that are just making like, you can't believe that it's on the CBC, which is like our, our public broadcaster here. Um, and so like, and, and Schitt's Creek is another great example. Now Schitt's Creek had these like legacy Canadian comic talents in it, right? Like uh, Eugene Levy and, uh, and uh, Catherine, um, my goodness, I'm forgetting her last name. Uh, O'Hara? O'Hara? Okay, yeah, yeah. Cap, Catherine O'Hara, yeah. Um, and uh, it, so these are people that are like, you know, SN, not, sorry, Second City lifers and like people that have been like making comedy forever. But we are really, we are like very proud of them. <laughs> I will say this, that Canadians do not hold ill will for uh, Canadians that get big in the States. Uh, it's like the ultimate, like you did it. You you did it, you son of a bitch, you know? Not like a sellout, like, oh, you went to America and now you- No, 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 there's never that. Like that. that's, if you go that's not the feeling, but there is extra love for an art, especially like bands, there is extra love for a band that makes it just happen in Canada. So if you're a band that like, is just like a Canadian road dog band and like builds up an only Canadian fan base and writes songs that are like kind of explicitly about Canada, uh, that gets you a special next level of love. So there's no ill will to the big Canadian bands that make it big in the States, but there's a little extra love for a band like the Tragically Hip or, you know, one of my favorites is a guy named Joel Plaskett, who's, uh, who's from Halifax. And he is very much a, a Canadian musician whose fan base is, is deeply tied to Canada. And his songs are very, uh, you know, reference Canada and Canadian geography. But it's like amazing music. He's actually an amazing songwriter. Uh, and I feel like the rest of the world is sleeping on Joel Plaskett. But there are some things about him that are just so specifically Canadian that maybe it just doesn't translate, you know? Oh, yeah. I do, like I said, we have, we have Texas country. Um, right. And if you, you know, like if you move to Nashville, see, we're like, oh, you're Stella. You moved out of Texas, blah, blah, blah. And there are songs that where they name drop. And I have friends who from, live in Texas now, but, you know, they're from california or new york or you know other places even even like oklahoma which is right in our our direct neighbor to the north they're like what are they talking about i'm like oh yeah they're talking about the old number three on dairy queen when you get it and you add extra gravy and did it you know just weird random stuff it's so, so yes uh i i completely understand and completely relate as far as like this is if you talk and sing to us it's it's really cool yeah uh, Real quick to go back to the past, uh, the the War of eighteen twelve. Basically, I mean, I, I hate to say it was a war of of nothing, but what we wanted out of it, uh, Americans, didn't change. We didn't, you know. It, and go listen to the show. It, the three parts, about like four and a half, five hours of your time. Totally <laughs> worth it. Uh, I could binge it in a day. It, it's so great. But basically, we had three big complaints had to do with a lot of stuff with the British and their naval supremacy and none of that changed yeah. and the borders and anything I say we captured but mostly anything Canadians captured went back like it was just a big reset button yeah uh which ha has happened in a few wars major wars <laughs> since then you know but I, I think what's still cool about it is like you said we have these anecdotes on both sides but 
what my biggest takeaway from your show was is the roles that like the first nation people like uh tecumseh and all them yeah. I actually just watched a documentary about tecumseh sherman and they did a whole thing about like where his name came from i'm like whoa let's do a documentary on that like uh yeah right in the original charter i get or you know peace offering we were supposed america was asked to carve out a place for first nation people yeah and unfortunately that was like one of the first things to on the chopping block like okay we'll we'll go but just just i mean not real quick but hmm. could you you know talk about that in the role that the natives played um yeah. not only the war of 1812 but you know in in canadian history like were they always pretty allied to you or was it more just like hey america's being jerks you know is this where you learn the hey we'll be nice to people so they'll fight america with us when it happens <laughs> Uh, both countries have just like a terribly fraught history with the first people of this continent. Um, and you know, like what, what's interesting is that if you go back to the big war before the war of American independence, it's, uh, something that in America that you guys call the French and Indian war. And we in Canada call it the seven years war and everywhere else in the world, they call it the seven years war. So America has a very specific weird name for it. Um, but in the Seven Years' War, most indigenous groups, especially the Iroquois, uh, allied with the French and fought the British. And so yeah, for a long time, the perception was that the French were actually the colonial power that was most sympathetic to the indigenous cause. Now, the French had their own fraught relations with indigenous people. The French had their own atrocities, uh, wars uh, with indigenous people. But basically, like, you know, by the time you get to that point in history, Europeans have been in North America for, you know, in a serious way for like about, you know, by 1812 for like about 200 years, right? Give or take. Um, and, uh, and so like, and though, you know, we're kind of past the point of sort of uh, disease really playing a factor in, uh, in indigenous history. So the question of like who different native groups are going to ally themselves with usually were just marriages of convenience. Um, and so like they allied themselves with the French because they thought they could get a better deal with the French. They fought the British, right? And there were some groups that allied with the British because they felt like they could get a better deal. Um, then when it came, but then when things flipped, what's interesting about the United States is that even written into the Declaration of Independence, if you go past the stuff that everybody quotes, you get a little deeper into it. Uh, there's a lot of stuff really specifically about like uh, native people. There's a lot of stuff really about like, we are here to claim this land from the savages, right? Like, like uh, Thomas Jefferson gets into it about, about indigenous people in North America. It's written right into the documents. And so the American Republic was right at its outset, uh, explicitly hostile as a policy uh, towards, towards indigenous people everywhere. And there were treaties made here and there as, as it goes, right? But as a policy, it was just like hostility. Uh, Canada, I don't know if this is better or worse. Our history is more double dealing and like backstabbing 
and uh, alliances made, relationships formed, and then betrayals. Um, and, and, you know, it's just like, it, 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 and that goes on to the point where indigenous people eventually want something we're reckoning with. And I kind of ended my, my, uh, show with is that, you know, right now we're still reckoning with the history of what we called the Indian residential school system here in Canada. And, you know, in step kind of began in the late 1800s, continued the last residential school closed in 1996. So not that long ago, many of them closed in the 1970s, but one, there was one that lingered on until 1996. And these schools were there to uh, erase indigenous culture. It was, they were there specifically to erase the culture of all different tribal groups to make their, to literally beat their language out of them. Uh, And uh, then we just now through, we've been going through this process of, what's called truth and reconciliation, these commissions to get to the truth of what happened there uh, and trying to sort of make amends with our indigenous community here in Canada or communities, I should say. There are so many different groups with very distinct identities. Um, And man, it's like a law, it's a fraught process. It is still highly contentious and highly emotional. Um, So, you know, Canada doesn't have, I wouldn't say that we have a better record with indigenous people. Uh, America is unique in that it has such an overtly antagonistic um, like uh, you know, history with indigenous people, but Canada kind of does too, except it was done in a way that in, in some ways was more backhanded. Uh, yeah. And so um, it's not something that I think either of our nations should be proud of. Uh, it's not something that I think uh, it's, and so, I mean, I, I know I'm going in a bunch of different directions here, but I have a lot to say about this, obviously. Um, what's interesting is that when the, a subtle narrative that comes in in Canada, when you're taught about things like the War of 1812, and no one ever says this explicitly, but this is something that I know I thought. And so it must have been a narrative that was suggested, is the idea that the reason that Native people, Indigenous people partnered with us is because we treated them better, right? That the reason that they were our allies is because they knew we, were, we weren't racists like Americans. And that's not true. <laughs> that's not true, but that's a story that I think we like to tell ourselves sometimes, uh, that somehow we are superior. And the, the fact that in the War of 1812, you know, the Canadian colonies had all this indigenous support suggests that we were somehow like had this a much more sort of fruitful and friendly relationship. And, um, you know, those we know, if you look at, at those relationships at all beyond that war, you very quickly see that these were marriages of convenience and, uh, and tensions very quickly rose up again. And indigenous people, much like in the United States, just get, kept on getting pushed west or forced onto reservations. Um, and, uh, and, and the history just gets dark from there. So yeah, those are some of my thoughts on that. Yeah, no, and I agree. Like, you know, we we have Thanksgiving here. And yeah. everyone's like, oh yeah, you know, the 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 natives and the pilgrims came together and, that, and I'm like, yeah, but then let's talk about what happened like a year later, less than a year later, you know. Um, and it's kind of getting heavier than we normally get on this show, but that's okay. Cause you know, so yeah. like this last year we we didn't really do Thanksgiving because I was like, you know, that like 
it's one of those, oh no, look, America is nice to natives. Look, no, we're friends, but it's it's a holiday of con- convenience, you know, it's to make yeah. us feel better about ourselves. And uh, so, you know, we, I mean, we went to the family's house and stuff because they, I'm in Texas. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but even then, I'm like, in my mind, I'm just, sell it like i'm i'm not celebrating what you i'm like i'm celebrating a day that to me it's it's fat thursday like this is an excuse for me to eat because if you if you think of it in the way that we were taught growing up as oh yeah this is all about like how nice americans are and how much natives help them and stuff and you're like how they welcomed us to us uh, this land and then they gave it to us they gave it to us yeah they just said oh here we'll show you how to use it and then you can have it yeah and it's (laughs) And, and and that's one thing to, to full circle here. That's mm-hmm. one thing that got me hooked on your show is um, I think where we are right now as a, a world, you know, we're realizing these history books that they used throughout the entirety of the 1900s that were written in 1940, you know, or, you know right at 50 after World War II. The, uh, it's, it's, you know, not to say history is written by the winners, but we're learning that, oh no, wait, hey, this is, this is, this is fake history. This is, mm. to, to steal a quote, our fake history. Yeah. And then your show does such a good job of, uh, in, in a fun way though, like it's not always, if y'all think he's just sitting over here on the show talking about like how horrible all of our countries are, it's few. Yeah, no, no, that's, <laughs> that's not really my style. That's not really my style. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, sorry. No, no, it just, it, it's, it's a lot of fun, you know, whether, whether you're doing a report from a, a bunker, an atomic <laughs> bomb bunker, or you're talking about if Atlantis is real or talking <laughs> about the, um, the Schliemann. The yeah, little, yes, Schliemann. I hadn't heard that name in a while. Uh, or, <laughs> you know, talking about how major cable networks that are supposedly all about the past or history yeah. don't don't really fact check themselves uh it's a fun show it's a great show and i Thanks, man. recommend everybody check it out but well, i appreciate that i appreciate that yeah no i i uh you know i do try to get real from time to time uh about like serious topics but the show is supposed to be fun and oh, the show is ultimately about stories like it's really just like my love of a really good story is at the heart of a lot of it and a lot of times like the, the myths i have to bust are like some of my favorite stories and like i so i try to kind of uh honor the story while also sort of being honest about what the good what the good research tells us really happened and so uh, but yeah, man, I appreciate all the nice things you said. That's that's super sweet of you. It's it's so much fun, and I, I love our chats. But so, like like we've talked about, you know, America, we kind of think, oh, we're the power, we're this, we're this, we're that. We can do what we want. Um, so I'm I'm going to use that, and I'm going to do what I want. And I asked you a question at the top of the show. Uh, just like this way, it fills a spot in in your show for somebody else to ask a question. So see sure. again, I'm that American mentality of oh no, I'm helping somebody else by my selfishness. That's that's what I'm doing here. Um, so has there ever been a topic that either you just, there was too much information, it was too overwhelming, or there was too much conflicting information, you know, something, not that you had to walk away from because uh, we, we've talked before as far as when you get into um, religious topics, like those, yeah, got to tread and those, but like one that you're just like, there's just so much here that I just, I'm, I'm not going to do this. 
Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, well, as you've kind of heard, like I've been a bit more cavalier about the religious topics lately. I've kind of just been going for it a bit more. Uh, and I've been, I've been very happy to discover that people have been like right along there with me, uh, right along with me on that ride. That's what I was trying to say. Um, but okay, yes, there have been a few topics that I've gotten into. I've been like, oh, this is just too massive. And one that I've been researching and I still really want to do um, is on the East India Company. Uh, so I'm really curious about how this one corporation from England managed to take over a huge chunk of the planet. Like, how did that happen? How did a corporation manage to take over India? right? Like what, how is that, how did that happen? And so I've, I've started the research on that. Um, and it's just, it's, it turns out that it's really, really complicated how that happened, <laughs> as you might expect. Like it, it's not a simple story to tell. It's a story that spans really 200 years. Like it's a 200 year process. Uh, so I'm, fascinated by it and along the way there's a lot of great stories and a lot of great myths to bust but like for instance like again coming back to the seven years war like there's a moment in that history like to really understand how the east indian company gets a certain edge at one point you have to understand the seven years war and it's like oh crap like how do i just like like even if i did that as a trilogy and for those of you listening that don't listen to the show i have a rule for myself that i'll never make a series longer than three parts. Um, I've just sort of discovered that that's like a nice limit to put on a topic. Uh, I find that if in, in other shows I've listened to that when topics extend beyond that three part um, uh, uh, number that people actually start dropping off. You can actually even see it in, in your, your, uh, your download numbers. Um, and so I, it also, I think it's just a good restriction for me as a storyteller, because otherwise you just get lost down a million rabbit holes. So it's just like, it's gotta be three parts. So trying to do the East India company in three parts is tricky. And I haven't wrapped my head around that yet. And I was researching it and I just like, was like, I need to just set this one aside. Like I just, I'll come back to it eventually. I need to maybe just sit with it and just like, absorb more of that story into me so I can kind of rip it off a little bit more um, quickly or I'll, I know the sort of big moments a little bit more off the top of my head. Um, but that's a big one. Nice. So yeah, nice. there's the answer. That's my answer for you today. <laughs> nice. Well, and it is, you know, cause like now you have corporations like Walmart or McDonald's, perfect example that took over the world but there that's a, a culture an identity like that's oh this is cool like, you know this is a cool american fast food thing and the east indian they didn't they didn't have that you know they weren't selling big macs they were selling people and spices and yeah it, like it, so yeah I, that would and, be and controlled territory like as powerful as mcdonald's is like there isn't like the like they don't like own a quarter of asia you know that we know of no <laughs> yeah <laughs> could be could be a big conspiracy uh but anyway awesome well Sebastian, always a pleasure uh, yeah love, you know this i'm a fan of the show so getting to hear the ins and outs and your expertise on everything uh 
if for some reason somebody listening is under a rock and doesn't know where to find you, where where all can they find you out there in internet and podcast land? Sure. Uh, well, you can get our fake history on every podcast app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all your all your podcast apps on your Android phone. Pocket Casts is great. Podcast Attic actually just hooked me up. Maybe yeah, find me on Podcast Attic. Those guys are great. That's what I give- always listen to you on. <laughs> I'm going to give them a shout out because actually the people who run podcast addict are amazing and like very good to podcasters. So podcast addict, find me there. Uh, but if you just want to look at the website, go to ourfakehistory.com. Uh, you can just browse through all the archives. All the art is up there. I get a, original art created for each episode that's done by a, a friend of mine and a comic book artist here in Toronto named uh, Frank Ferentino. And I love the art that he makes for the show. So Go browse through it there. You can also see all the sources that I use for the show as well. I post my my bibliographies on the, the websites as well. So you can see that I'm not just pulling this stuff out of my butt. Um, and uh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. You can find me on Twitter at Our Fake History. You can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Our Fake History. Find me on Instagram at Our Fake History. I'm, I'm Our Fake History everywhere. So yeah, you like you said, if you, you know, the War of 1812 was a, a suggestion. So follow you know you're you, you listen you listen to people you listen to your listeners there's oh yeah uh and uh, that's something that i admire you know that i think is really cool is that if somebody gives you an idea i i'm still rooting for who created the calendar like that's that's the one oh that yeah I, I post every so often like hey who created because i i watched a documentary about it now it's like mm, i i don't know they they seemed a little as the kids say sus <laughs> the kids are saying that these days <laughs> my kids said it the other day i was like what? yeah that that's totally sus <laughs> but anyway well especially again thank you so much uh make sure you go check out our fake history um thank you canada for being an awesome neighbor putting up with all of our shenanigans <laughs> as it hey. were and i say thank you to america for 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 being your weird self what would we talk about if not for you See, that's why Canadian TV didn't have to be good. You just watch what was going on in America, and you're like, "Look at this! This is entertaining <laughs> enough." These hey, we it. love you. We love you. That's what, that's it's all it's all love. <laughs> even in our even in our moments, we're just shaking our head. There's still love. There's still love. <laughs> we're that weird cousin that's just like, "Oh yeah." <laughs> yeah. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to go check out our fake history, and we will see you next time. See ya. Thanks. Oh